Leviticus chapter 19, just two verses. Uh, First verse is verse uh, 2. Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then verse 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. Father God, we commit this time to you and we ask that you would uh, be our instructor, that your Holy Spirit would illumine our eyes and enable this time to be a time where you would be glorified with all of the responses of our heart. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. There was a, a widow who was asking a young man to guess her age. And he was obviously pretty uncomfortable, and he was pausing for a moment. And she said, come on, you must have some idea. And he said, well, I have several ideas. The only trouble is I hesitate whether to make you 10 years younger on account of your looks or 10 years older on account of your wisdom. (laughs) He was playing it safe. (laughs) But uh, that story does illustrate Uh, The irony that many people want to have the honor that comes with old age, but they don't want to be counted or treated as if they are old. They want to have their cake and eat it. And this confusion over what is truly honorable is not just between the um, issues of young and old, but also between males and females, uh, citizens and civic officers, even the kind of honor that we would give to a guest to our house. I think... um, One area uh, that we still tend to be old-fashioned in in America is in the courtroom. Egalitarianism has totally, totally changed the landscape in America and every other area. But man, when you go into that courtroom, everybody's got to rise when the judge comes in, right? And uh, you're going to be in trouble if you do not show respect and honor to the magistrate. In fact, uh, last week, Scott was telling me that he has to really mind his P's and Q's, even how he dresses uh, in the courtroom, right, Scott? And uh, kind of raises your blood pressure a little bit if you have to approach the bench. He says, I want you to come to the bench here for a moment. And why is that the case? Well, I think it's because our society still expects that there be a great deal of honor that is given to a judge. Now, I want you to keep that word picture in your mind as we begin to look at other forms of honor In the society, I'm not going to restrict myself to just the elderly of this text. We're going to be applying it uh, uh, more broadly as well to other forms of honor. But I hope to spur you into thinking about good forms of preferential treatment that we are to give to uh, various individuals in our society, to women, especially to older women, to officers in the church, officers in the state, others who are in authority. And don't expect that your kids are just going to automatically pick these things up. Now, if you're doing it consistently, they will pick it up uh, to some degree, but we do need to teach them consistently from the Scripture. And actually, uh, this is not something unique to our era. I used to think that we're just the era that has really struggled with this. As I was doing a little bit of research, I found that there was complaints about society lacking honor going all the way back to the ancient uh, Greeks. I uh, read a a story that happened when a criminal came before Lord Bacon in the late 1500s in England. And uh, this guy just brazenly walks up to the the judge and says, Your Highness ought to let me free. We're really kin, for my name's Hogg, and Hogg's kin to Bacon. (laughs) 
kind of clever, but not a thing to say to the judge. <laughs> the judge was not too uh, too pleased. He said, after he said, a hog's kin to bake, and he says, not till it's hung, it's not. <laughs> but um, we live in an age when there just do not seem to be any rules for how you treat women, the elderly, a police officer, congressman. Uh, the average citizen does not know how to properly address a letter to the president or to a senator or to a congressman. There's protocol, and you address each one of those differently, right? And uh, today's sermon is going to be just a brief introduction to the topic. But before we get into Leviticus 19, verse 32, what I want to do is I want to read you a few scriptures that call for honor and that punish dishonor. And the first one may seem a little bit shocking to you because it shows... Uh, God's hatred of the sin of failing to honor His prophet. Please turn to Second Kings, chapter twenty. Uh, no, Second Kings, chapter two. It's a powerful passage, and if you've ever been tempted to uh, mock an officer who represents God, keep this passage in mind. Second Kings, chapter two, verses twenty-three through twenty-five. Speaking about Elisha, it says, Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled forty-two of the youths. Then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now, this was not personal vengeance. He was a prophet. God was speaking through him. And this uh, was an inspired curse that came from God himself and shows God's attitude toward lack of reverence. The second thing I think it shows is that this whole issue of how we show honor is not simply a cultural thing. Every culture has struggled with this issue. Uh, for our second reading, I want you to turn with me to Job chapter 32. This was the beginning of the speech by Elihu, who, by the way, is the only one that is not rebuked by the Lord. Uh, in fact, his speech parallels a number of things that the Lord says later on. Uh, but here was a problem that Elihu faced, and it's a problem that modern young people don't even consider. They don't even think about. Here was the problem. He was considerably younger than Job. He was still an adult. But he was considerably younger than Job, and he knows he needs to disagree with Job. And uh, we're going to be seeing that, that uh, it is not a, a problem to uh, disagree, but he wants to do it in a respectful fashion. And first of all, he lets the others who are older than him talk. And so let's begin reading at verse 12. No, excuse me, at verse 4. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said age should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. 
Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I, played close, I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. So it showed a, a respectful way of disagreeing, and it showed an honoring of the people who were older than him. And the last passage is the one that I started with earlier. It's um, Leviticus 19, verse 32. Let me read it one more time. You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God. I am the Lord. As I mentioned, I'm going to apply this passage more broadly than the elderly, but I think we can at least see that it wants us to serve him by revering and reverencing those who are older. That's a very radical, radical statement in our uh, present age. Today, youth is idealized and people fear getting old. Uh, they don't want to be considered older. <laughs> uh, they try to deny that they are old. And I think the facetious statement is definitely true that while nearly everyone wants to live a long time, nobody wants to get old, right? Uh, you can see it all around you. Companies make millions of dollars every year selling creams, hair tonics, vitamins, promoting various diets that are supposed to add years to your life. And I think a lot of what they market simply would not have been appealing in a biblical uh, society. In Hollywood, in music, in literature, in fashion, it is youth rather than age that is idealized. Uh, people even endure surgery just so that they can look many years younger than they really are. And so we're dealing with something I don't think is going to be intuitively obvious uh, to Americans, and so I'm going to kind of belabor this and use a lot of illustrations to get the point across. And I want to speak, first of all, of the standard, then the motive, and then the goal of respect shown to those who are above us. And the standard is the simple command, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man. And I'm going to try to unravel the implications of that using three points, uh, the meaning of the word honor, the posture of honor, and the presence of honor. And all that's under Roman numeral one. Let's look at the meaning of the word honor first. If you take a look at verse 15, you'll see the same word for honor, hadar, is used in that verse. And I think by examining the context, it'll help us to understand what it means. <clears throat> because in verse 15, hadar is forbidden. In verse 32, it's commanded. So if you look at those two contrasts, I think it'll really clarify a lot of stuff. Verse 15, you shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor, that's the word hadar, nor honor the person of the mighty. And so this verse helps to define honor as being partial to an individual. Uh, Hebrew uses parallelism, which shows that these are synonyms. And in fact, uh, the word hadar, the word honor, is actually translated as to be partial. That's how close it means to partiality. In Exodus 23, verse 3, where it says, You shall not show partiality. There is the word hadar shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. And so when it comes to a judgment in a court of law, a judge is not to show hadar to anybody. Now, everybody's to show hadar to the judge. There's to really respect him and give honor to him. But he is not to show hadar to a single person in his courtroom, whether they are great or small, young or old, rich or poor. It really does not matter. They are all equal before the law. But verse 32 says 
outside the court, they are not all equal. All equal before the law, outside the court, not all equal in social relationships. And so what is forbidden in verse 15 is commanded outside the court in verse 32. Though, I guess you could say it this way, though everyone has equal rights before the law in a courtroom, before the throne of God even, not all are to be treated equally in their social relationships with, with each other. I think that would be a summary statement. And this is so contrary to egalitarianism that is trying to totally destroy all distinctions. And you've run across all kinds of examples of egalitarianism. One that's been pretty radical in recent years has been homosexuality. Uh, even in evangelical circles, so-called evangelical, I don't consider them evangelical, but there is many people who say because Jesus said that in Christ there is neither male nor female, that you can't be saying you can't homosexuals can't get married because that's distinguishing between male and female. And so there's no difference that we should uh, see between a heterosexual or a, a homosexual marriage, obliterating of distinctions. And we would say, well, in the courtroom, uh, yes, there is no distinction. Before the throne of God, there is no distinction. But in our social relationships, there absolutely is. Uh, other ways in which egalitarianism has been at work is in child-centered education and the way people rear their children in the homes. Children are treated the same as adults. And the children are taught to treat adults the same way they would treat their peers. The scripture says that is ungodly. That ought not to be. Uh, you've seen it in feminism uh, of our culture that tries to level all distinctions between husband and wife and all distinctions between men and women within a local uh, church. And I think most uh, people intuitively recognize there has to be some distinctions. For example, in Proverbs 31, it says we are to treat our wives with hadar, with honor. Okay, It means we're to honor our wives more than we would honor other women. Uh, we're supposed to be partial to them in a way that we are not to others. And I think everybody would recognize, yeah, that's true. We wouldn't want to be treating all women exactly the same. It's unavoidable. And so there will always be distinctions in our social relationships somewhere. And God says in a number of places of Scripture that when those social distinctions are eradicated, He is not pleased. Isaiah 3 and verse 5 speaks of the horrible state of a nation, quote, when the child will be insolent toward the elder and the base will be insolent toward the honorable. Proverbs 30 is another passage. It highlights four things for which the earth is perturbed. That means it's really upset. And under which it cannot bear up under the weight. And all four things are a failure to recognize distinctions in honor. And so in verse 15, distinctions are obliterated before the throne of God, before a court of law, but nowhere else. So a judge is not supposed to show any hadar to a great man in a court uh, where there's a dispute, but in all other social relationships, we must show hadar. Psalm 45 is another example where we must show hadar to a king. You know, New Testament says, fear the king, honor the king. Uh, here it talks about Hadar and it translates Hadar as giving majesty to the king. And so it's just one of many um, verses that indicate there is a good and godly way in which we must show preferential treatment to certain people. That's point A, the meaning of honor. Let's look next at the posture of honor. The verse says, 
you shall rise before the gray-headed. That means getting up off your chair when you're greeting an older man, you know, when he's coming into the room. Now, I think it's worth asking the question, if the command to honor an elderly person is not culturally relative, what about the standing? Maybe that is culturally uh, relative. Some people say, well, I just treat this as the same thing as foot washing. And that'd be one example of honoring, but it's certainly not the only way that we could honor an older person. And it's not the way I prefer. And certainly the older people around me don't prefer that uh, I stand up when they come in. They don't want to be treated differently. And so some people will say, you know, this is just a culturally relative thing. But I want you to notice three things about this passage. First of all, it's a command, not a suggestion. Secondly, we've already seen that the word hadar does indeed indicate we are supposed to treat certain people and the elderly here differently. It's a partiality. We're supposed to treat them differently. And then thirdly, God wouldn't even have to give the command if it was a culturally relative um, you know, situation. The reason why he's commanding them to do this is because they've just come out of a culture that was corrupt and that did not honor the elderly like they should have honored them. God wants us to act differently from our culture, to rise when an older person enters the room. For that matter, if we were to say it was culturally relative, uh, we could say, well, we wouldn't even have to honor them because our culture doesn't honor the elderly at all. So if we're not going to do the one, you know, why should we even uh, bother uh, with doing uh, the other? And it may be actually in our culture that the reason people don't stand is because there isn't honor. One flows out of the other. There's a fourth argument, though, that's convinced me that this is not simply a cultural posture that passed away 50 years ago. When I was uh, younger, everybody did this, at least around the circles we hung around. Everybody would rise, you know, when, when a, and shake their hand, and then they would sit down. But there was this, this, the, 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 this thing that would come uh, as a part of our culture. Well, anyway, this argument states that the norm of rising was not simply applied in the Bible to magistrates and to the elderly. It was also applied to women and it was applied in ways that would have been totally foreign to the Egyptian culture that they had just come out of. I want you to turn with me to Proverbs 31. None of the pagan cultures around there honored the women the way that the Bible says that they uh, should. And the exact same Hebrew terms are used in Hebrews 31 as we looked at in uh, Leviticus 19. Verse 25 indicates that women should be clothed with hadar, with honor. But look at verse 28. This calls us to stand up for our women. And I mean literally to stand up. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. The word rise up is exactly the same Hebrew word for to stand up. And it's interesting that the husband's included in that. He also. Now, here's the situation. The husband's in authority over the woman. So why would he be standing up when the woman enters into the room? Well, it's because Scripture says he's supposed to honor uh, his wife. And uh, so when we look at some of the old-fashioned, well, 50 years ago, I guess, is old-fashioned, isn't it? Some of the old-fashioned uh, forms of chivalry that we've had in Western civilization, uh, people just think, well, that was just weird. Where did that arise from? It did not arise from the West. The West borrowed that from the Bible. 
All of the other forms of rising as well, since we're just looking at this one point here, came uh, from the West. And so in this passage, the husband rising before his wife, not because he's an, uh, she's an authority over him, but because he's trying to honor her. And I think I made a big mistake when I allowed culture to dictate the way I which I treated women publicly. I was raised to do exactly this, to stand up when a, a woman entered the room, to get up off my uh, seat when I was on a bus and there were no seats left and a woman came in. And I would do that, but you know what? I got flack so much in the 60s and the 70s from feminists who would call me a chauvinist, you know, and what is the matter with you? You know, and, uh, they were really sensitive about being treated differently. And I got so tired of the abuse, I just gave up even trying to treat women with deferential treatment at all. And that's not the answer. Uh, I don't think that's the solution for uh, dealing with our cultural problems on women or in dealing with our cultural problems uh, with regard to uh, the elderly. And I've been, by the way, trying to change this. And uh, you guys can be you know, reminding me about this, but opening the door for my wife and holding the door. I, you know, I, I think I've gotten a lot better at doing that. But you get so conditioned to think the way the culture does that it doesn't come naturally. It does not come naturally. And I want us to really pray about working together uh, with uh, you know, developing a church culture that is uh, explicitly Christian. So we've seen that we're commanded to rise for the elderly. Husbands are shown how to honor their wives. Children, how to honor their mothers. It includes praise, but it also includes rising for her, just like Leviticus 19 talks about rising for the elderly. Now, scripture also calls children to honor their fathers. And interestingly, Genesis 31.25, there's a grown lady who's expected to rise when her father enters the, uh, the, the tent. And Rachel, in that passage, apologizes to her dad for not standing as she ordinarily would because she says, I'm in my period. Please excuse me for not standing, she says. She really wasn't. She was trying to hide the idol. But it's interesting, the expectation there. In uh, Genesis 37, verse 7, it speaks of both standing and bowing as ways of honoring a civil magistrate. Job 29, verse 8 is very similar. And that's an interesting passage because... Uh, there are people who are older than Job, and yet they will stand when Job comes into a room. Why? Because Job is the chief magistrate of Edom. And so they're giving preferential treatment to him. It says, The young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. Nehemiah 8, verse 5 says, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Now, that's one of several scriptures indicate when you're reading the scripture from the pulpit uh, that that's one way of showing honor to the Lord is by standing, uh, standing up. Now, that's just a brief survey uh, indicating not just that standing is a God-ordained means of honoring people, but it's a God-ordained means of honoring the Lord Himself. Scripture says, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now, I hasten to say that the Scripture also indicates there are times for sitting in worship, especially during the, the sermon. And I would say the same is true 
uh, when we are dealing with the elderly or we're, when we're dealing with uh, some other person that we're trying to honor. Just like with a judge, you stand when he comes in and then you can all be seated again. You know, and when a person comes in, you stand up and you shake their hand and, and you introduce yourself, then you sit down, you're comfortable. That's the way it is in worship. So we're not talking about standing all the time. We're just saying this is a courteous way of showing a greeting uh, to a person. Now, let's drill into this a little bit more deeply. We might ask the question, why does the Scripture uh, bring up this particular mode or posture of honor? And I'm sure I can't give every possible reason, but let me suggest one that I think has bearing for every culture. I think one reason is that because there is such a close relationship between our bodies and our spirits, what our body does many times influences the way our spirit thinks. Okay, there's a very close relationship. They, they influence each other uh, very powerfully. And God wants our bodies to be consistent with our spirit's desires. And so if with my mouth I say I'm being patient, but with my fingers I'm drumming away, you know, on the table, I'm miscommunicating, right? Or maybe I really am communicating, right? But there's an inconsistency between what I'm saying and what I'm doing. There's quite a difference between gazing into your wife's eyes and saying, you know, dear, I really love you, and plopping down on a sofa, flipping on the TV and saying, yeah, I love you too. Uh, now, both of those may be very true, but they are communicating different things, right? Um, when I pray on my knees, I feel different about my approach to God than when I pray sitting down. It affects, it makes me feel more humble, it makes me sense God's majesty, the difference that exists between the two of us. I feel differently when I pray standing up. Our body posture has a huge difference on how we feel and think. We tend to separate it in the West and think the body has no relevance whatsoever to spiritual matters and the scripture tightly holds those things uh, together. God is telling us to put this honor into action. He says, I want your body to show honor, not just your mouth. Now, here's the problem. People will respond, but in our culture, especially in the last 25 years, that is not meaningful at all. So why should we do it? It's not meaningful. But um, let's um, ask the question, why is it not meaningful? We can't just say it's not meaningful. We need to ask why. And I believe it's because democracy and egalitarianism has so infected the minds of the people that the biblical distinctions have become meaningless to us. And I think it's worthwhile sometimes just doing your own study. How does the Bible talk about the elderly relating to, to us? I'm just going to read you one passage, and it's from the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5.1 indicates we cannot speak to an older person in the same way that we would to somebody who is our own age. And it may seem strange to our egalitarian culture, but it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Now, of course, that assumes we are honoring our fathers as well. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger as sisters. And so it's saying... Even the way you talk to one another, there needs to be a difference that we exhibit in how we relate to those who are older than we are. Uh, we were watching some years ago um, uh, a, a video series on the law, and R.J. Rushdoony had a little segment in there 
And I was really surprised at some of the people kind of mocking him because of the slow way that he spoke. I mean, he was quite elderly at that point, and it did take him a while to get things out. But I think that is the antithesis of giving honor and deference to a person. Uh, the expressions sir and ma'am that are frequently used in the South were attempts at speaking honor. Now, that's maybe getting beyond our text here, and not everybody agrees that that's necessary, but I think we need to bring into our culture ways in which we can express this difference. And don't just say nobody else is doing it. That's utterly immaterial. Nobody else is honoring the elderly either. So I would encourage you to start practicing little courtesies like this with your children. Uh, not all Western customs, I think, are worth resurrecting, but I definitely think this, this one of rising and greeting is. So we've seen the meaning of honor. We've seen the posture of honor. Let's look next at the way in which honor is shown through presence. Our passage says, honor the presence of an old man. The New American Standard uh, in the margin has, honor the face of the aged. There needs to be a face-to-face -face communication of honor. And I think so many times in our culture, parents are just shunted off to the nursing home. And once they're there, it's out of sight and out of mind, and they never get any visits. Now, I'm not criticizing nursing homes. I think there is a place for them, especially when there are medical needs uh, that cannot be met. There are issues that cannot be met in the home. But what I am criticizing is when people no longer visit the aged. It's a failure to honor the older. And it's not just our parents that we are to honor, it's the aged in general. And I think this is where nursing ministry, nursing home ministry can be a wonderful, a wonderful part of our church outreach. If you talk to nursing homes and say, you know, would it be okay if I came over and just chatted with people or read books to them or something like that? man, you'd, they'd be thrilled. They'd say, oh, yeah, that's, that's great. Talk to Mike, you know. They love it when people come in and just spend some time chatting with people, praying with them, reading, doing things with them, playing chess with them or something like that. Um, and so the weightiness of the honor that God has conferred upon the aged should compel us to work at it. It's not going to just come like that. It takes planning and effort. Now, let me give you some other suggestions that relate to this. Some of you are in your 20s and your 30s and you say, well, I'm not an older person. And that's maybe relatively true. But you're older than some of our kids are. And what I would encourage you to do is to not pour cold water on the attempts of our children to honor you. You might have different ways that you honor others, but don't uh, say, you know, if, they, if they're trying to hold the door open for you, that's taking away your independence and making you feel uh, old or something. Receive it as an attempt to fulfill this command. If they say that we're not allowed to call you by your first name, don't say, oh no, just go ahead and call. What you're doing is you're undermining parental attempts to instill respect and honor uh, into our children. Now, you may have different ways that you're going to go about that. We can respect that. But let's try to think, how can we enable the children outwardly, very consciously, to show respect to those who are older than they are. Okay, another point is that it means that we should not put the aged on the shelf. They've got a very valuable place to be in God's kingdom, and it's not just sitting in front of the TV all day. They can be models of piety to the younger set 
Uh, even when they're going through suffering and their body is falling apart, they can be models of piety in how to handle such issues with grace. Uh, even when they're dying, we shouldn't isolate our kids from the older people who are dying. We, there's, we've sanitized death. You know, Rodney was talking about death earlier. And we've tended to sanitize it. Everything is made so pretty and, and kids are, are not allowed to witness the dying of their loved ones. I think we should have them right there and use it as a teaching opportunity. But they can be models of what it means to die with grace. I love the response uh, that John, uh, President John Quincy Adams gave in his old age. Uh, he was in his 80s and very weak and frail. And there was another guy who was about the same age, a little bit better health, and he came up to uh, President Adams, took his trembling hand and shook him and said, Good morning, and how was John Quincy Adams today? President Adams said, thank you. John Quincy Adams himself is well, quite well, I thank you. But the house in which he lives at present is becoming quite dilapidated. It is tottering upon its foundation. Time and the seasons have nearly destroyed it. Its roof is pretty well worn out. Its walls are much shattered and it trembles with every wind. The old tenement is becoming almost uninhabitable and I think John Quincy Adams will have to move out of it soon. But he himself is quite well, quite well. <laughs> now, the point is that even though people are starting to fall apart in their bodies, it doesn't mean they're not valuable, okay? They may not be able to do a whole lot of stuff, but their souls can still be quite well before the Lord. And if we can honor them and say, it's not their productivity that counts, it's their person. We love them, we value them, and we're not wanting to put them on a shelf. We want to be in their presence, so we looked at the standard or the command. Let's look next at the motive for obeying this command. Verse 32, again, says, And fear your God. So the motive is not so that the older people can like us, so that we can inherit their, uh, you know, their wealth. Uh, it's not so that you know, we have better relationships. It's a very God-centered reason. It's because we fear God. In fact, if you look at the parallel structure of the first two clauses or phrases there, it indicates that the fear of God is indicated by the fear of man. To the degree that we fail to reverence God, we're going to not be reverencing those who are in authority over us. And if you see a culture that does not honor and respect and revere the older officers, magistrates, and things like that, it is guaranteed that they do not honor and reverence God. God links those two things together very, very tightly. Uh, I think Christ makes this quite clear in Mark chapter 7 when he is discussing uh, the whole subject of how we treat parents. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, and then he gives an exposition on this commandment. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have handed down. And many such things you do. Christ is upholding this verse. He in effect says, you dishonor me when you fail to honor the elderly, when you fail to honor uh, the parents. 
Now, I suspect that even this congregation has been infected with the egalitarianism of our age to a degree that at least some of you were shocked when I read the words from Christ's mouth that you're worthy of death if you curse your parents. Worthy of death. That's, in this day and age, <laughs> that's like, that's unthinkable. And I've seen, I've heard um, uh, uh, key people uh, who have uh, castigated that Old Testament command, and yet Christ upholds it. Why? Because this gives God's attitude about those who fail to give honor where honor is due. If it's worthy of death, it really is a serious thing that we ought to be thinking about. Have you ever wondered why so many evangelical pastors are flippant in their approach to God? Why is it that they do not have the kind of awe and reverence and depth of relationship with God? Well, I would submit to you that probably one of the reasons, at least, is that there has been absolutely no awe or reverence for those who are older or for their parents. There is a tight linkage of those two things uh, together. A shallow reverence for parents will produce a shallow, shallow reverence for God. And so it's not surprising to me that the moment communism took over in Ethiopia, they tried to level out all distinctions and they deliberately took older people and people who were older magistrates and they tried to humiliate them by having little children giving them commands and forcing these guys on pain of death to follow these commands. Why? They, they saw... This, level, this, uh, this giving of distinctions, honoring and bowing before an older person as being inconsistent with their atheism. I don't think it's by accident that the Eskimos used to practice euthanasia on the elderly. I don't think it's by accident that we're having more and more uh, euthanasia in our own, uh, in our own uh, society. Uh, it's just, it's bound to happen. Ephesians 6 verse 1 gives both the positive and the negative side to this fear. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So it's giving both a blessing and a cursing that flows from that. And why does it flow? Because God backs up that commandment. Uh, scripture says that societal disintegration will happen when honor for each other is lost. And the honor doesn't just have to be between, you know, the young and the old and between the sexes. It can even be between two people who have the same office. Uh, in er early years of America, John Randolph and Henry Clay had a quarrel in uh, the Senate in Washington. Randolph refused to talk to Clay for weeks, several weeks, and one day, they saw each other on the same sidewalk, approaching each other, and the sidewalk was too uh, narrow for them to both be able to go on it. And when Randolph got up close to Clay, he stood his ground. He was not going to move out of the way into the mud of the street. And he said, I never turn out for scoundrels. Mr. Clay politely stepped into the mud and said, I always do. <laughs> and their quarrel continued. But that was an age in which, I mean, we idealize that age, but that was an age in which personal honor always trumped the honoring of other people. They did honor other people, but defending your own honor was so serious that there, duels were very common. Hamilton, uh, who, who was it? He, Aaron Burr. Um, yeah, he died because of a, 
of a duel that he got into because they felt they had to defend their honor. Well, the Scripture says, forget putting your own personal honor ahead of others. That has got to be set aside and we need to be thinking of the honor of those that the Scripture calls us to honor. Malachi 4, verse 6 says that when there's a rift between the generations, God will strike the earth with a curse. He said his purpose is to realign the hearts of the fathers with the children of the children with the fathers. Second Chronicles 36.17 describes the ungodliness of a nation that has no compassion for the aged and weak. Now, what does that say about our nation that aborts millions of babies and euthanizes older people whose insurance has run out? It's interesting. They never euthanize them while the insurance is still bringing in the big bucks. Uh, and if you don't think that that's happening, I can give you some stories right here in Omaha that uh, we have been involved in trying to intervene and keep euthanasia uh, from happening. It happens. It does happen even uh, right here in Omaha. Isaiah 3, verses 4 through 5, portrays the breakdown that had occurred between the elderly and the young as a result of God's judgment. It says, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, every one by another, and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder, and the base will be insolent toward the honorable. And then Isaiah speaks about every area of social structure beginning to fall apart. You see, if one link in the chain is broken, everything that's attached to that chain is going to fall apart. Well, this is one of the key links for holding society together. It's a vital link. And if we fear the Lord, we're going to honor the elderly, women, officers, and magistrates. And our motive, the thing that should drive us, is not because how sweet this is. Let me tell you, it's not always sweet to honor the elderly because they're not always sweet back. Some of them are grumpy and grouches. The reason we should do it is because we fear the Lord. We reverence Him and respect His authority. The last thing that I want to look at very, very briefly is the goal. The verse ends by pointing to the goal, which is the glory to glorify God by His grace. And it says simply, I am the Lord. Now, anytime you see Lord in capital letters in New King James, it's Jehovah. And that phrase occurs 14 times in this um, in chapter. It's a continual reminder that God is the goal. He is the pattern. But I would say, and I should have put it into your outline, He is the supplier of this holiness. And the reason I say the supplier is because the name Jehovah is the covenant name of God. It's the name that refers to God's redemption. It's associated with His redemption. So in other words, it's only by grace that this command can be fulfilled. Christ is the one who can restore all broken relationships. Sin ruined the relationship between the young and the elderly, and Christ's sacrifice was designed to restore that. And He not only gives the command, but He as Jehovah God gives the strength and the desire and the perseverance to be able to keep that commandment. And so our goal in life should be to conform our lives to Jehovah God. We are to be holy because He is holy and just as He is holy. And we might say, well, how in the world is this imitating God? I mean, God doesn't submit to anybody. Actually, He does. The Son submits perfectly to the Father. And the Holy Spirit honors the Son. The Son honors the Father. It's interesting. There are places that talk about the Father honoring the Son, just as husbands must honor their wives. And so it very much is imitating uh, the, the Godhead and conforming our lives to what He calls us to do. And so this morning, if you come short, you realize that you have indeed been living in sin 
what I want you to do is take it to the cross of Christ and say, Lord, I want you to take this away. I thank you that you are the covenant God. Your name, Jehovah, means my salvation. And I want this removed from my life. I want to conform my life to the pattern that you have said, set in your word. And let's remind each other about it as well. Uh, like I say, I've been so infected by my culture that some of these things just don't come naturally. And so I give you permission to remind me when I have not uh, arisen uh, to greet an older person who comes. Uh, I really want this to be a part and pattern of what I do. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And I pray that we would indeed honor those whom you have called us to honor. Uh, we pray that there would be such a fear and a reverence of you in our lives that it would translate into a fear and reverence of those uh, whom you have set as authorities in our lives. Uh, may the wives of our congregation uh, reverence their husbands as the Scripture commands. May the children reverence their parents. Uh, may the uh, parents uh, reverence officers of the church that you have put uh, there. And Father, may uh, all of us reverence and honor uh, even when we disagree with uh, politicians and uh, other magistrates. But, Father, may we reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and by your grace live out this passage. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.